on Fridays, we usually do music on this podcast. But today, I'm featuring the story of the Rickroll because it's so well told on the Endless Thread podcast. But one of Harrison's biggest obsessions and one of his biggest videos ever traces the history and origins of the Rickroll. It's called The Story of the Best Meme Ever, and it includes what he calls the four key events that made the Rickroll blow up. Number one, in 2005, there was an episode of It's Always Sunny called Charlie Has Cancer. And in that song, Never Gonna Give You Up plays, and the song grew online because of it. Uh, uh, Number two, in 2006, a Michigan man named Eric Helwig called onto his local radio station, and it was like a sports talk show. That one we know already. And so number three, in 2006, the creator of the internet forum 4chan, Christopher Poole, who is also known as Moot, created a word filter that replaced the word egg with the word duck. This 4chan word filter thing was a silly joke with what, in retrospect, has been a huge impact. Basically, people were talking about egg rolls, and somebody modified the way language appeared on the site to replace the word egg with the word duck. Just a curious little silly piece of software. After the word filter was made, someone made an image of a duck on wheels. And then that image became like a popular gag on the site. People would do the whole hyperlink bait and switch where, oh, you think you're going to click something super interesting, but then you just get the picture of the duck roll. (laughs) Aha. So there was a roll before the Rick roll, and that was the duck roll. That was the duck roll. Wow. And so the final sort of piecing together, the perfect storm, in March of 2007, with the first trailer for Grand Theft Auto 4 being released, there was so much traffic on the site that it crashed. And someone on 4chan used that same method of the duck roll by saying, oh, here's the link to the trailer, but it was Rick Astley's never gonna give you up. Smuggled people, sold people. Perhaps here, things will be different. Now, we grant you that at the outset, this is just weird niche internet joke stuff. But these things tend to bubble up. Grand Theft Auto 4 is one of the best-selling games of all time. 23 million copies. And if that game's popularity gets turned into a bait-and-switch joke online by a bunch of people searching for the game trailer, and Rick Astley is where they land, Rick Astley himself is going to have a little spike in popularity, too. 2008, that is like the year of the Rickroll. 2008 was prime Rickrolling. And when Harrison says prime Rickrolling, he means like the Rickroll was basically present in every single big event of the year. Uh, There was some sort of survey that was conducted that said that 18 million Americans had been Rickrolled. And when you look back at 2008, this is not surprising. Hacktivist group Anonymous was blasting the song out of loudspeakers in front of the Church of Scientology. People at basketball games during March Madness were dressing up as Rick and singing in the audience. Someone made a fake video of then-presidential candidate Senator John McCain getting rickrolled at a 2008 presidential campaign event. Senator Obama does not... And Rick himself rickrolled the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. 
During the parade, a group of goofy characters started singing a children's song. People let me tell you about my best friend. He's a warm-hearted person who loved me till the end. But midway through the song... Companies got in on it, too. YouTube had the entire homepage do a bait and switch, with every video linking back to the video. (laughs) Oh, for goodness sake! And then, maybe the ultimate troll of 2008, the MTV European Music Awards had a ridiculous award that year for Best Act Ever. U2, Green Day, Britney Spears, they were all nominees. But you could also write in a candidate. And of course, the internet delivered. 2008 EMAs, you've been rickrolled! The best act ever is Rick Astley! So it's easy to get a sense from Harrison about how it happened 13 years ago. But why is it still happening? The video just passed a billion views on YouTube and is within the top several hundred videos of all time for just a simple music video that was made over 30 years ago. Kids who are just kids are rickrolling each other all the time, still. Like in middle school Google Docs and university links to online coursework. But Rickroll was one of the top posts on Reddit practically last week. In fact, there's a new version among the top posts almost every week. In meme years, this should basically be an antiquity. But it's still very much around. How did this granddaddy of internet memes get such staying power? It can't just be internet chaos theory, right? There has to be more there. There's something irresistible about the song. The video, too, with its happy dude dancing his butt off in what appears to be an abandoned warehouse, church, bar thing, staring deeply into your eyes. Can you really deny him? And in this regard, Harrison is kind of like Eric. Are you a fan? Of Rick Astley? Yeah, have you become a fan? Oh, that's an incredible song. That song is wonderful. I'm a huge fan of the song. Why? I mean, I'm a big 80s pop music guy anyway. I think the drama and theatrics of it, it's infectious. You want to sing along to it. It makes you feel kind of silly, but that's the charm of it at the same time. In the late 2000s, millions of people were rickrolling each other online. Even Rick Astley rickrolled a kid's song at a Thanksgiving parade. And he even won the MTV Award for Best Act Ever. But before all of that, Never Gonna Give You Up was just a pop song. It was written by a group of struggling English songwriters who were trying to cash in on the dance music craze. In our journey to understand not just how the rickroll came to be, but also why it came to be, Ben and I are now talking to someone who was there when it came to be. Songwriter Mike Stock is telling us about just how good he was in the beginning as a 20-something working musician in the 1970s. I was awful. I mean, people would ask me to play songs which I should have known. I, 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 I remember making a very bad attempt at something and feeling highly embarrassed. So Mike Stock realized relatively quickly that he might not make it as a performing musician. But he was actually a good songwriter. So he started a business with a few of his favorite collaborators, Matt Aiken and Pete Waterman. They became known as Stock Aiken Waterman. And since it was the 70s, 
they dabbled in dance music. The genre was Boys Town. How would you define Boys Town? Well, uh, essentially, uh, gay-orientated, gay clubs yep. were using the... Uh, th- they were normally using uh, cheap, cheaply made records, as long as they were set at around 130 beats per minute, got the hand claps and the cowbells on them, which used to set off the sound to lights in all the clubs, so that made it more exciting. And uh, there was a thing called Northern Soul, uh, which came from north of England, which is the same thing. People, people were starting to dance. I mean, one of the songs, the opening lines of one of our number one songs in the UK by Mel and Kim is, it's, it's our occupation, we're a dancing nation. And that's, that's what I thought we were aiming at. Stockake and Waterman were getting work in the Boys Town genre, but they weren't getting it on the radio yet, really. The way to popularity and more work with more artists was to have one of your records go big in the dance clubs. Which started happening with Stock and his partners in the early 1980s, starting with a band called Dead or Alive. And then they were off to the races, right? Straight to the top from there on out? Well, I... Obviously, having your first number one was a big thrill. But uh, the main thing that that happened was that the phones stopped ringing. There are a lot of ways to explain this, but Mike kind of boils it down to one theory. More underground artists they'd been working with thought they'd gone fully mainstream. And the mainstream thought... All they can do is that dastardly high-energy gay music. Or... Interesting. Yeah, Yeah. that's, that's the way it is. So... The recently supposedly wildly successful songwriting trio Stock, Aiken, Waterman got a little concerned. There's me, Matt, and Pete sitting in our studio saying, well, what are we going to do next? We're number one. (laughs) Well, let's invent something. Let's do something now. What they did is start to work with unknowns. Backup singers and a kid who had just started interning at their working studio. Apprenticing. Was it a fellowship? Mike had a specific phrase. Tea boy, he got my sandwiches. You know, I, I know he doesn't like that. But we we were a waiting. Tea boy, yeah, we were waiting for the opportunity to work Great with him. Name. So Pete, oh, I do not know what that is. Sorry, two nations separated by a common tongue. That's us, is it? <laughs> the kid was from Northern England. He was a kid still, just a teenager, and he looked way younger than he even was, like a minimum of five years younger. Mike's songwriting partner, Pete, had seen the kid perform in a band. Didn't like the band, liked the kid. Invited him down to be a studio assistant. And one day, they said, hey, let's give the T-Boy a chance at doing a song. They were planning on having him just do a cover of Ain't Too Proud to Beg. But then, the T-Boy, whose name was Rick, stepped up to the musical plate. When I got him on the mic and started to listen to what, I, what he was and who he was, I thought... This guy's too good for this. I was I was absolutely amazed. I mean, the voice that came out of him didn't sort of match his look. Yeah. Um, and and it, it is a strong, powerful voice he's got. It is a little hard to overstate this incongruence. If you have been Rickrolled, you know what we're talking about. Whatever you think the owner of this voice looks like... And if you ask me how I'm feeling... He doesn't. He looks like a svelte 14-year-old still wet behind the ears. So the voice, which is already kind of magic, is extra magic. 
It's at that point I'd say to Matt and Pete, look, we should write him a song. So they did. Mike Stock wrote the music, Waterman suggested the title, all three of them built the lyrics around the music, and they recorded it. But Rick didn't have a label to put it out. And in the interim, it got briefly sidelined by other projects, including at least one more song you have definitely heard before. Things got busy for the songwriting trio. Months went by. Then, one day... I tell you how it worked. I came into the studio, as was my sort of routine, at 11 o'clock one morning, and one of the guys in the office, in our promotions office, was playing uh, the song because it had been given to the officer on a cassette or something. And I came upstairs and I thought, bloody hell, that sounds good. <laughs> I hadn't listened to it for, for two months. So I thought, geez, that sounds great. As I, and he's playing it loud, this guy in the office. And as I'm coming out, up the stairs, Pete Walsman's coming down the stairs, we both stop and look at each other. We both go, blimey, what are we doing with this record? Why haven't we got this thing out? So that was the kicker for us. We suddenly heard it, as it were, out of the blue without being deeply involved with it. If you were to identify the key distinctive genetic code of the song, like the thing that makes the song, what is the thing? Well, I mean, in a simple sense, the sentiment is understandable. We always made the vocals proud, uh, proud of the track, you know, loud enough to hear every single word. But on a musical level, it's a structure of chords, which incidentally, subsequent to us writing it, I've heard on half a dozen hit songs. It may be true that Never Gonna Give You Up does have a particular formula that makes it work musically, or that the surprising nature of Astley's voice, coupled with his baby face in the mid-1980s, has given the song mysterious properties that have kept it in the ether this long, loved by people like Eric and Harrison, who were born full decades after the song was a hit. The music video definitely has something to do with it. Rick's casual shimmying, seemingly made up on the spot, the weird empty warehouse he's in, the outfits, double-breasted jacket over a small collared sweater, trench coat, black jeans, black turtleneck, a full-on Canadian tuxedo. But the singer himself, even with a number one hit in the U.S. of A, did not stick around at the top. Here's Rick Roll YouTube historian Harrison again. So this is where it gets a little strange. Rick would sell millions of records. He had a Grammy nomination. He collabed with Ellen John. And he was, like, rich and famous by 24. But then around that time, he got really sick of the industry and didn't want all the fame. Everything was sort of too much for him. He was having this existential crisis. He wanted to raise his family. And so he called it quits. The never-gonna-give-you-up guy gave it up. He seems to have been the rarest of rarities, a purposeful one-hit wonder. Lies. He had more than one hit. Okay, two-hit wonder. Still, he made his mark, and then he kind of tapped out. And the rest is internet history or rather music history, which eventually became internet history, because of a kid doing prank calls in Michigan. 
or a bunch of meme lords on 4chan. Or an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Or all of these things. That's the clip for today. I can't include the whole 40 minutes. So if you want to check out the entire episode, head over to the show notes. But otherwise, have a great weekend, everyone.